0: Well, friends, we will be beginning a new sermon series this morning. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open in them to Ecclesiastes 1. We're going to be looking at 1, 1 to 3, and it's after Psalms and Proverbs in the Old Testament. If you need uh, help kind of finding your way through there. Uh, but as we begin, uh, I want to tell you just a, a brief story about uh, a story that sociologist Jonathan Kozal wrote. Uh, as he met with a woman he calls Mrs. Washington, uh, he met her in the South Bronx. Uh, he met her at a time where uh, she and her son, David, uh, were living in a homeless hotel. Now, they were on the bottom floor. Uh, they had multiple locks on the door to try to protect them uh, in a difficult part of town. And and over the course of several meetings, it was obvious to Colesal that uh, Mrs. Washington was actually dying. Uh, she was growing weaker and weaker each time he met with her. And so he felt like every time, hey, I, I need to just sit. This is sacred ground. I want to just listen uh, to her stories, and, and stories she was certainly able to tell, uh, just really about the the underbelly of, of uh, the aspect of the urban life that she experienced there in the Bronx in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, she would tell stories about intense poverty, how difficult it was for her to even receive uh, simple health care. Uh, she shared about the various forms of abuse that she faced, of drive-by shootings that hit innocent bystanders, of the AIDS epidemic that she uh, experienced while living uh, on the streets there, and and um, over the course of this time, uh, Mrs. Washington and David, her son, uh, were very open to talk about spiritual things with Mr. Kozel. And and at one point, David, her son, said this, I wonder how powerful God is. He must be wise and very powerful to make animals and trees and give men and women organs and a brain to build complex machinery, but he doesn't seem powerful enough to stop evil on earth. At a later visit, Mr. Kozel sat down next to Mrs. Washington, and, and he saw that she was sitting there with the Bible next to her, and, and he said, hey, you're, you're going through it. Some of the most difficult things you could ever face. What on earth in the Bible are you reading to help you make sense of it and to give you comfort? And her reply to him was, well, I love Ecclesiastes. If you want to know what's going on in the world today, it's all right there. Fascinating. I love this story because in a way, it kind of feels like the struggle that we're going to find as we open the book of Ecclesiastes, of, of David, or son, trying to make sense of, of the futility of the world sometimes and the meaninglessness that, that he has run into. But, but really, by the end of this book, what you see is this kind of a, a quiet faith in God and saying, it's all right here as we lean into it. Phil Reichen, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church and now a president of a university, says this, if Ecclesiastes could help Mrs. Washington face her challenges as a single mother living in a homeless hotel in the Bronx, then Ecclesiastes can certainly help us wherever we may be today. You see, friends, what is held before us in this book is we live in a broken world, one in which we are tirelessly seeking meaning and purpose, but as we seek it here, at least if we, fig- if we think this is where it will end and that search will come to a conclusion, it will all make sense just by observing the world around us, this book will quickly dispel that myth. And so Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 3, we're going to read just the first three verses of this first chapter. This is going to be very much a, an introductory or an overview sermon here this morning, but here's what it says. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David. King of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me open us as we begin this book in prayer this morning. Well, Lord, this book engages with some of the hardest questions we will face. And in part, uh, it, it will engage with this feeling that we can often uh, experience that that what's the point? What's the meaning of all of this? Uh, what we're walking through, what we've been through, is there purpose? Is there meaning? And if so, where do we find it? Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be with us as we look into your word, as we look into this honest and complicated book. I pray, Holy Spirit, that through it, you will woo our hearts to you. Lord, that you will um, give us the boldness to wrestle with you uh, in the areas where it does feel hopeless, Lord, where it does feel futile. As so the Holy Spirit, would you speak in and through your word and in and, and, and through me uh, as we engage with this text this morning and we pray these things in your name? Amen. All right, so the title of the sermon is really The Search Begins, because this really is following along the path of this man as he searches. meaning. And so the simple outline this morning is we're going to look at the search, we're going to look at the limits of the search, and we're going to look at the opportunity at the end as we walk through this book to either be broken along this search or to actually build as we search. And so the search, the limits, and break or build. That's our three-point outline. And so as we begin the book and as we look at this search and as it begins, we need to kind of hit the three D's of this book to kind of understand what we're getting ready to venture into. The 3Ds I'm labeling today is, is it's a desperate search. It feels like a dystopian search. And then finally, along this search, we need to understand this idea of double knowledge. All right? So desperate, dystopian, and double knowledge. And here's this idea of desperate. And before we get uh, to the desperate piece, has anybody wondered what an Ecclesiastes is yet? Have you ever thought about that? Have you found the book? The word's not in the book, really, at least in the English. So here's where Ecclesiastes actually comes from. Verse 1, you'll see it say the words of the preacher. All right, so in the ancient Hebrew, the word here for preacher is kahaleth, right? It starts with a Q. I don't have it up on the board. You probably couldn't spell it anyway. It's a tough one, right? But but that term essentially in Hebrew means the assembly, all right? And when it's referring to a person, it's talking about a person who is proclaiming in the assembly, and so it would make sense that they are actually called the preacher. Now, when you translate that term Kahuleth from the Hebrew to the Greek, guess what it is? Ecclesiastes. Alright? So there's the word. Ecclesiastes. And the reason this book got that actual title is because when the Greek uh, was translated into Latin in the Latin Vulgate, which is the common language of the people back when the Latin Vulgate came into existence, they just took that title and slapped it on the top and called it the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's talk about the preacher here For a moment. This preacher uh, that we're engaging with, uh, at least until recent times, uh, has been understood by Jewish and Christian scholars to be King Solomon, the son of David, ruler of Israel who ruled in the 10th century BC. We get that because in 1.1 it says, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. In 1.16 we are told that he is immensely wise, and that's a character quality that we see taught of King Solomon. Uh, in various places in Scripture. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, uh, we see that he is uh, leading uh, the nation of Israel at its pinnacle, and we know, or, or at a high point, and we know that Solomon led at its pinnacle as well. Now, I want to be honest with you and also tell you that there is debate, uh, right? There, there is pretty much over every book of the Bible a debate on, okay, did they really write it? Who wrote it? Uh, a lot of people way smarter than me have engaged with this um, and I would just say, if you want to wrestle with that a little bit, Trimper Longman has a great commentary where he dives into this. But I think at least the internal evidence that as I read it, it feels like to me and as I read other influential scholars, I, I am citing on this is Solomon. But regardless of where you come down, even Christian scholars would disagree about these things. Um, essentially, there is this reality that this preacher is on a desperate search. This preacher is on a desperate search, in desperate search for wisdom, for the meaning of life. This is part of the wisdom literature of God's Word. The reason we say this is because he'll say things like this throughout the book. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with, right? And so he's saying, hey, I am applying my heart, my will, my everything to discern a uh, how to make sense of everything that is going on in the world around me. So it's a desperate search. It's also a dystopian search. It's a little bit of a downer of a book. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is not one that on Monday morning when you're just looking for a pick-me-up, you're going to be like, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes and really get a shot in the arm and do this, right? It, it repeats terms like vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How's that for a Monday morning start, right? Right? Or there is nothing new under the sun. Ugh. Right? Friends, for those of you who love the Hunger Games and the Divergent series, yeah, you're probably going to be right at home here. Or if you're kind of an Eeyore-ish, or you like Counting Crows, or Juice World or Lincoln Park, or any of those things, if you're a four on the Enneagram, you may actually love picking up the book of Ecclesiastes, right? But, but for a lot of us, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to make sense and be like, wow, this is, this is a hard one. This is a downer. How do we struggle through this and make sense of it? The bigger question is, is is, is this part of the inspired Word of God? I thought it's all supposed to be happy-clappy, right? And joyful. Now you and I know, if you were here in January, books like Habakkuk actually dispel that myth. Psalms of Lament exist. The Bible is remarkably honest with the challenges that we face. I was reminded this week as I read um, some writing from my uh, uh, professor, Zach S. Wine, where he talks about the shift in tone of another believer who wrote many books. Many books that were really the pinnacle of a stalwart faith, of one that uh, leaned into the hope of Jesus time and time again. His name was C.S. Lewis. Have you ever heard that name? He wrote books like Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain, The Weight of Glory. But have you ever read the book, A Grief Observed? Have you ever read that book? that's a tough book. It feels pretty Ecclesiastes. It was written as he was wrestling through the sorrow of losing his wife. He makes comments like this, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. How about that one, huh? Now, it has some positive tones in there as well. But friends, I just read that to say uh, it, the Bible is bold enough to engage with the hard things of life. And it's important for us to engage there as well. And in part, especially as we see this author in Ecclesiastes engage with humankind, with the struggles of the heart of man, we need to talk about this term double knowledge. Right? That's the last D, double knowledge. Right? This is a, a term or an idea that John Calvin uh, really coined in his Institutes, uh, where he's talking about, "Hey, the way we truly discover wisdom is as we wrestle with the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self." He's basically saying, first of all, you can't understand God at all unless you set your mind on God. The only way to do that is through how He revealed Himself in His Word. He also argues you cannot understand yourself. Right? We live in a world where, like, I understand myself. I'm going to go search for meaning, and and I'm going to get to know me. And and friends, what Calvin would argue is you actually can't know yourself unless you truly understand your Creator who created you. And here's the third thing I would say, is that sometimes we get a more full-orbed understanding of God by paying attention to what He is doing among us. He reveals Himself by His own recovery of humanity. Our exposure to the broken areas of our lives in our world, he uses it to show us what we were made for. And he invites us to look at what has actually become of us. So here's what this book does. In this book, God intends us to know him by requiring us to look plainly and without polish at ourselves, at our neighbors, and at the broken world around us. Here's what he says in the Institute's It says we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. So why study a book like this? Well, first of all, it's because this book actually asks the biggest and hardest questions of life that we're probably already asking anyway. The second thing I think it does, and as Calvin references here, it teaches us how to live for God and not just for ourselves. We live in a culture that is constantly saying, just live for yourself. Just understand yourself, and you'll figure out the meaning of life. And what this book will do, and what Calvin points us to in the Institutes, it is no way are we ever going to to find true meaning and a true definition of self just by studying me or you. Here's a third thing. It's honest about life's troubles. We interviewed Tommy for the director of worship position. One of the things that struck me is when we asked him, hey, what's your philosophy of leading worship? He said, I I want to engage and sing songs that are hopeful, right? And that's kind of a default, I would think, uh, of a Christian church. But he said, I also want to engage in songs like Lament, that ask hard questions of God. Because if we're always singing that we're just hopeful and joyful all the time, we're actually maybe bending into singing a lie. Because sometimes it is dark, and sometimes the road is hard. So in this search, what we're also going to see, especially in verse 2, is our search actually has limits, especially if we are trying to find meaning here, on this side of eternity. And here's the limits, right? Here's the stark conclusion that he makes. It's kind of a thesis statement of his. At the beginning, in verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity." What on earth? Okay, so if you have an NIV, New International Version of the Bible, they actually make an interpretive move as they're interpreting the Hebrew. The Hebrew term is hevel, right? And it's kind of a tricky word to translate. And so they make a move where they interpret that as being meaningless. So if you have an NIV, it says meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. The ESV takes a different interpretive move and says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And I will just say, I bend towards the vanity, vanity, all is vanity, because as you read through the rest of this book, it is apparent that this author, this preacher, is not saying everything that we do in life is actually meaningless. It'll become evident as we read the scriptures. But I think I would lean in the direction of vanity. And and in order to understand even what vanity is, we need to see how it's translated in other areas of scripture. Uh, Here's an example, Psalm 39 uh, behold, you have made my days a, f- a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere havel, breath. Here's another interpretation, uh, or here's another verse with that interpretation. Psalm 144 O oh Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the Son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, a havel. His days are like a passing shadow. And this theme, although it's a different word, is brought forward in the book of James where it says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? So what's he saying? Well, you can interpret it breath. And I think a great picture would be something that we won't experience for several months. But when you walk out into the cold and you just go, and you see your breath, how long is it there? How attainable is it? I think that's what the author here is trying to portray, that that life is a vapor. And there's two things we can pull from that. One, life is short. And two, life is elusive. It's like our cold breath in the morning. It's there one second, it's gone the next. And friends, I will just say, if you talk to people as they age, you will hear time and time again, man, life is short. It's something that is often caught uh, in our in our um, popular music now, look, I know y'all don't listen to country. We're in Philadelphia. As close as we get is kind of like I don't know Bon Jovi. I don't know is that is that as close as we get to country up here? But uh, you know, there's a there's a song called "Don't Blink" by Kenny Chesney. He's a country artist. Just just bear with me. But I get a little misty whenever I hear it. It's about this man's hundred year birthday, and the chorus is something like, he's like, you know, "Don't blink," just like that. You're six years old and you. You take a nap and you wake up and you're 25 and your high school sweetheart becomes your wife. Don't blink. You may just miss your babies growing like mine did. Turning into moms and dads, the next thing you know, the better half of 50 years is there and then and you praying God takes you instead. Trust me, friends, 100 years goes faster than you think. Don't blink. Elton John, Candle in the Wind, about Marilyn Monroe, like that smoke that goes out. Bon Jovi, right, It's My Life. That song's all about the shortness and brevity of life. Linkin Park, In the End. I, I don't know, Millennials and uh, Gen Z. Y'all just contact me and let me know what y'all songs are for your generation. Maybe maybe you're not reaching that conclusion quite yet. But but the point is, is life is short, but it's also elusive. Have you ever tried to grab your breath? How'd that work? Were you able to catch it? What does it do? It just... Slips right through your fingers. Friends, I think what the author here is saying is that finding meaning in life will elude us. It will elude us. It will elude us in the sense that uh, it will have no true lasting reality or impact in our lives. You ever built a sandcastle? So I grew up going to the Outer Banks, not the Jersey Shore. All we have to do in the Outer Banks is sit on the beach. There's no boardwalk, right? You just sit there all day. And so we would do things like we would build this huge moat, right? And we'd throw all the sand in the middle, and we'd have these fancy um what are they called? Buckets. That's what they're called. And so eh, English. Um, so, so, you know, we're building this sand castle and it's it's you know elaborate, and we're kind of notching out the windows, and and it, it's just it's getting to a point where it's like it's perfect. And then, man, what always happens? What do we forget about as we're building this huge, beautiful castle? High tide. We forget about high tide. And then all of a sudden, right, we're like, oh, the moat's filling. <laughs> oh, there's a big wave. Crash and it's gone, right? And in a way, that's a picture of what this journeyman, right, is painting for us. Is finding meaning in this life is like building sandcastles. David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backwards, challenges us to live with the end in mind. So friends, how do we live with the reality that life is short and meaning will be elusive as we try to find it on this side of eternity? Here's the final point, this idea of break or build. And have you ever done something that feels impossible? Had a task before you were like, it is impossible to move this thing, to do this, for this person to change. Have you ever been in that place in life? The visual I had this week as I was thinking about this sermon was a big rock face, right? And being like, man, this rock face is in my way. I need to move it. And I put my hands on it and I just start pushing as hard as I can. And how demoralizing it would be if it didn't even so much as wiggle, which I can't move a huge rock. I don't think any of you can either, right? And what do we do when we're faced with an immovable uh, task in life or, or search? We either rage or we just fall into despair. I experienced that a little bit in my garage here this week. Uh, we were changing, I was changing license plates from one van to another. And, and man, there was a stupid nut and bolt that had fused together. And, and I i spent an hour and a half. I was so angry. WD-40, Dremel tools, hacksaws. I mean, I ended up just destroying the license plate. An hour and a half, I'd walk in and, and I could see Sarah being like, you need to calm down. Like, whatever's happening in the garage an hour and a half is pushing against a rock and there's 12 chapters in this book the first 11 chapters feel like that it is the author trying in every way shape and form to move the rock of meaning in his life and failing time and time again Here's what I want to do. Start. I want to start us with this book with the end in mind because there is a chapter 12. Mercifully, there is a chapter 12 of this book. And, and here's where the author is going to be driving us. He's driving us to the one true God. Ecclesiastes 12.1. 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. There's a theme that we're going to come back to. Ecclesiastes 12.11. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed, and are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Talking about God, our shepherd. And then the book ends with 12.13. The end of the matter is that all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Derek Kidner kind of sums up the arc of the storyline of this book like this. He says, Cahillus plans to bring us to that point, last of all, the fear of God or the awareness of God, when we are desperate for an answer. There are hints of it in passing, but his main approach is from the other end. The resolve to see how far a man will get with no such basis. He puts himself and us in the shoes of the humanist or the secularist, the person who starts his thinking from a man in an observable world and knows God only from a distance. Here's what he's saying. The journey begins as a secularist or a humanist. Do you know what that means? It's basically someone who might say, yeah, there's a God out there, kind of agnostic, but I'm going to base my life and my truth over what I see plainly before me. That's secularism. That's humanism. It, it starts with us, and that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our meaning. That's where we find our morals. And we conveniently keep God at a distance. But over time, what you will see is what you often see it, it is someone coming to the end of themselves to say, I can't find meaning and is pushed to find it in God, in God alone. That is the arc of the story. And So here's the three character qualities of God we're going to see the author bring forth time and time again. First, he is creator. In this search for meaning, by faith, we are trusting that he, God himself, is the creator. He is the one who sets the whole scene. He is the one who has created the world with sometimes its own obstinate shape that we can't iron out to our liking. We also see the picture of Him as a sovereign. God Himself who prescribes some of the frustrations that we find in life. In chapter 6, we see it says, God gives power and wealth and honor, but not the power to enjoy. He is sovereign. We don't understand it. It might drive us crazy. When I started studying for this about a month ago, (laughs) May 3rd, let me just tell you what happened on May 3rd. My credit card got stolen. The contractor ran out of grout and I had to run down into the city to get more grout. I know, these aren't big deals, but just hear me out. There was a really challenging session meeting to prepare for. There was one text, can we talk? It's urgent. There was another text, I have a suggestion. (laughs) Um, um, Another text, uh, can we talk? Another call, can we talk? It's urgent. My wife calls and says, we have to primer the bathroom. We're going to be up till two o'clock in the morning tonight. Our van is not ready. The accountant calls and says, hey, there's no way I'm getting to your taxes by the tax deadline. That was just a rough day. I know some of you have had far more rough days, but that was one of those days where I was pushing against the rock. I could make no sense out of life. And I was just sitting there going, what on earth? Friends, in that moment, I was challenged because I'm studying this to go somehow I just have to open my hands and go, you are sovereign. Help me have faith in this moment. Here's the third picture that we'll see, is that God himself is the most infinitely wise. We're driven to face the hiddenness of God's ways in this book. He reduces our most brilliant thoughts to little more than guesses. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time, but also he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And then 8.17, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking. Friends, do you know what this is ultimately driving us to? As we read Scripture, kind of the lens that we view it through, is that what we see in the Old Testament are shadows of the form of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of what we read all over the place in the Old Testament. So, can I just read you? These are a few, a couple of verses that came to mind here this morning from Colossians. As we talk about God being creator, God being sovereign, God being infinitely wise, if you just camp out in Colossians 1 and 2, you will see the culmination of what this person was actually seeking for. Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn of creation. By him, all things were. Created, creator. 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Sovereign. Chapter 2, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, Jesus is the God-man reality and fulfillment of everything that we are going to read. Every longing of the heart that is going to emerge as we read through this book. And so Kidner would say this, this realization of God is how this book ends. On this rock, we can either be destroyed, but also understanding that it is a rock and not quicksand, there is also an invitation to build. Not sandcastles, but lives on the solid rock of the true meaning of God himself and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let me close, a couple quick thoughts and I'm going to wrap. How do we read this book? Because you're not going to read this like you do one of Paul's epistles or one of the history books of the Old Testament. In fact, Phil Reichen says this. He says, Ecclesiastes is not the kind of book where we keep reading to the end to get the answer, like a mystery. Instead, it's a book in which we keep struggling with the problem of life, and as we struggle, we learn to trust God with the questions even when we don't have all the answers. I think there's another reality that That the author, and I think God himself, is saying, hey, why on earth would we make our own mistakes when this writer is constantly saying to us, when will you learn from the mistakes I've made? On my humanistic, secular search without God. Friends, we are all on a desperate search for meaning. If we seek it here, we will recognize quickly that life is but a vapor. But God is the rock that we can build on. And he has offered us to build on him. So friends, as we read this book, the question is, will you break against this rock or will you build on this rock by faith? Let me close this in prayer. Father, I'm convinced that more of us are asking these questions. Where are you? What is the point? Then we'd like to let on. would you meet us with that question asking? Would you protect us from looking in places that are just going to evaporate before our eyes? But Lord, would you make us a people who submits our lives to you and to your word? And Father, may we see the offer of faith to build on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who you show us is our creator, is our sovereign is our most wise. Lord, help us through this book. It is a challenge. Help us to build on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.